everybody around us this summer, I say everybody, but we, our eyes were open to it in the last year that there's a lot of folks in their 30s that are our age that were seeing their marriages fall apart, and it scared us. After 11 years, Brett's marriage had grown stale. He wanted something better for he and his wife. That's when they found our podcast online and began listening almost every day. Focus on the families helped our marriage from the standpoint of opening our hearts to see things from the other's perspective and to make sure that God is centered in our marriage. I'm Jim Daly. Thanks to the generosity of friends like you, Brett's marriage is getting better. Working together, we can give families hope. Will you join our marriage building team? Call 800-THE-LETTER-A-AND-THE-WORD-FAMILY or donate at focusonthefamily.com slash hope and your gift will be doubled. Go big or go home. It's a saying we've all heard and it seems like that's become the working slogan for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Universe at stake? Eh, that's nothing. I mean, there's a whole multiverse out there to explore and battle through. And with each batch of Marvel movies, we're getting what gamers call power creep. Heroes and villains with more and more potency, often paired with stories that have more and more spiritual angles to consider. Hey everyone, Adam Holtz here, your host of The Plugged In Show, Focus on the family's weekly conversation about entertainment, pop culture, and technology. Thanks for joining us today. Well, think back with me, if you will, to the first Iron Man movie. I know it was a long time ago, way back long, in long 2008. Ago. Robert Downey Jr., I think coming into it, we thought was a little bit of a gamble, but man, he was a revelation. This was a role that everybody will now associate with him pretty much forever. The movie really got good reviews, and it seemed like comic book movies had begun a new chapter of exploration in terms of what could be done with this entire genre. And if, of course, if you had a big enough budget and enough computers running, you know, CGI processors to help you out. But the story itself, honestly, if you go back and watch it today, it was actually pretty limited. I mean, it was a guy in a suit fighting an arms deal and bad guys in that sort of realm. But now we've got stories that threaten every living creature in existence. That is where we're at these days with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, consequences that stretch across the cosmos. So today we are going to talk about that and how Marvel has gradually shifted from, oh, I'll call them earthling-sized stories to cosmic ones with gods and goddesses battling to shape all of reality. And speaking of the cosmos, in our second segment, we're going to be talking about Another pretty big movie, one that James Cameron certainly hopes will be as big as the first one, and that's Avatar, The Way of Water. It's been 13 years since Cameron last wowed us with on-screen imagery like we'd never seen before. You know, after 75 Marvel movies, we'll see if he still has it in him to, you know, surprise us and wow us. And Paul C. and I will kick around how this one works or doesn't work, and more importantly, what your family needs to be aware of here. And then we'll dive into another fiercely contested round of pop culture connection, where each of us will give answers to an entertainment question given to us by our producer, Ashley, as fast as we humanly can. 
You don't want to miss that, so be sure to stick around until the end. Well, that's where we're headed today, and I'm glad that you've taken a break from shopping or whatever it is you are doing this Christmas season to join our Plugged In Show conversation this week. As always, we would love to hear what you think about our discussion, and if you've got an opinion on the state of the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the new Avatar movie, we would love for you to let us know on Facebook or Instagram, and you'll find links to both in our episode notes for today's conversation, as well as on our corresponding blog entry at PluggedIn.com. And be sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcast too. Well, with no further ado, let's dive in. Today, I have with us Emily Clark, Kennedy Unthank, and Paul AC. Hey, everyone. Hello. Hello. So we're going to be talking about Avatar a little bit later. I figured I should ask, what's your favorite James Cameron movie and why? Go. Paul, I can tell by your expression that you were eager to launch us off with an opinion that that just begs to be argued with. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. So I tend to think that James Cameron went downhill after The Abyss. Huh? The Abyss, it's a very, very old movie. He's Why? been underwater since then? <laughs> yeah, so. Quite literally in some... Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's essentially this underwater tale, super, you know, sci-fi, all this great kind of stuff. Ed Harris was in it, which is one of the reasons why right. I really like it. Ed Harris makes everything better. He really does. The other thing is I was watching it with a bunch of college friends, and there's a really intense scene where water's filling up in this submarine-type thing, and the water's getting higher and higher and higher, and you don't know what's going to happen. The movie actually cut out right during that scene. Just as things were starting to get really serious, we had to wait for 20 minutes for that scene to restart. It was like a rain delay. It was really kind of crazy. But I still remember just the echoes of, oh, in the in the room <laughs> when it just went out. So that's one of the reasons why I do like that movie. Okay. Yeah, you know, the I abyss. think he just likes to have uh... – have breaks in his movies because there was an intermission in my favorite movie by him, <laughs> which is Titanic. And I'm going to say Titanic just simply because greatest love ballad of all time. So, yeah, um, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Titanic. I'll Kennedy? go for the nostalgia factor. All right. Uh, I remember when I was really little watching Avatar. Um and you know, I I was ignorant. You were really little. Yeah, yeah, oh. really little. He was a wee babe. <laughs> I That's can't awesome. even remember if I was double digits at that point. Oh, so, um, man. And yet here you are, yeah, all grown exactly. up, and we're glad you're here with us. <laughs> well, the uh, you know, it's I remember, and you know, I was too young to understand all the hidden messages under there. But like a lot of the, a lot of the really cool shots, the floating islands, the. You know, being able to transfer your conscience into this avatar. Um, Tall blue person. Yeah. Um, I'm glad it was somebody just, uh, enjoyed that movie because I thought it was overhyped. Yeah, no, I mean, nowadays when I see the story, I'm like, it's not that good. Yeah. But, you know, in my head, it was this perfect little world of, wow, you can, like, do whatever you want here. So, for me, it's just the nostalgia factor. So, it worked for you. As a kid, yeah. As a kid, yeah. All right. I think I have to go with Aliens. From 1986. I mean, it took everything that was fantastic about Alien and like turned it up, but not in a way that that wrecked the original. Um, And the progression of special effects from 1979 when Alien came out to 1986 was significant. And if you have ever watched Alien and wondered, why don't we see the Alien very often? It's because their special effects budget was so small that they didn't have enough money to have him on screen very much. So there you go. 
what you don't see is scarier than what you do see. Blair Witch. Blair Witch, right? (laughs) Another podcast for another time. (laughs) All right. So now that we have our favorite James Cameron movies on the table, let's talk about Marvel. Let's talk about what's going on there. And we're going to be talking about power creep. And Kennedy, you recently wrote a blog on this called What is Power Creep in Marvel and Why Does It Matter? And that's sort of our catalyst for our conversation today. So to get us started, tell us a little bit about the core argument or idea that you're making in your blog. Yeah. So really, I I analyze it through three different subcategories, I guess. And the first is that, you know, just in general, power creep tends to you know, it's not necessarily always a bad thing, but it tends to make a lot of the characters that you have grown to know and love, it makes them very irrelevant because, you know, they can't really they can't really play with the big boys anymore. They're on the get booted to the JV world saving <laughs> squad. Um, and that's when there's power creep with the villains, right? Is that what you're well, saying? Well, heroes, heroes and villains. Too. Yeah. Or because, heroes, okay. you know, you have someone like Doctor Strange come in who can literally turn time. Right? And, you know, it, it doesn't really... Yeah. I mean... Hawkeye's ability to shoot arrows relatively accurately doesn't really hold up. It's not a superpower. Um, But uh, the more important ones, though, obviously, you know, as you keep getting these higher and higher stakes, especially with the multiverse, you know, I was talking about, well, um, what do you do with this? Because when, when this universe is destroyed, does it really matter when there are infinite other ones that you could just, you know, if you just cut the movie suddenly and switch to that universe? Well, would we even know? Because there's infinite other possibilities. Right. So losing one doesn't really seem as valuable anymore. Uh, and then finally, obviously, we get into that really spiritual stuff. We've seen uh, multiple deities of various religions introduced. Uh, many of them, I mean, they kind of conflict with each other if it weren't for Marvel's meddling <laughs> and saying like, oh, actually, we're not even going to talk about the fact that there's these Egyptian gods out here at the same time that there's these <laughs> giant celestials. Okay. And, who knows which creation story is the right one in Marvel, but yeah. It does feel like you need a flow chart, you know, like you really one do. of those hierarchical <laughs> flow charts to see yeah. who answers to who sometimes yeah. well, when you're talking my, about Well, that's my thing because I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, did the Celestials also create the Egyptian gods or did the Egyptian gods create the Celestials? Right. Or And what about the Mesoamerican gods that exactly. we get in Black Panther, Wakanda mm-hmm. Forever? We have mm-hmm. yet another entire pantheon and we have Zeus and Hercules and the Greeks and what other – like gods and goddesses have we seen so far because it's really complex well thor and the norse gods see i knew that there was somebody we were missing but even with even with thor uh they originally explained it as they're not actually gods they're just like a super advanced civilization just out in the cosmos and humans mistook them for gods because they're so super advanced but now they're kind of switching it and they're kind of being like well actually yeah. They're kind of gods. And then you've got the time variance authority, which seems to be over a lot of this sort of stuff, yeah. where all mm-hmm. of a sudden these infinity stones, you even mentioned this in your blog, the infinity yep. stones are just these paperweights. Right. So it becomes... We're just playing marbles with them. The, oh. It really right. becomes very complex. So why do you think, you know, I said in the intro, we started with Tony Stark and Iron Man and his armor and fairly sort of concrete abilities here's a smart rich dude who's got mm-hmm. cool weapons i mean he's kind of batman on steroids not to i mean i don't want to offend no. your sensibilities <laughs> paul but he's an inferior form of batman he's an inferior form of Batman. i, I will let that ride for now oh my why why do you think we have gotten to this point 
with Marvel stories. And I think that I want to talk about that from a storytelling perspective, but I also want to begin to get into some of the spiritual questions that we've hinted at here, because I think that's where the significant conversation is for our families. Yeah. So I think uh, on one hand, it is kind of a natural thing for a series or a show or something that's been going on for such a long time. Power creep, I think, just naturally kind of happens. Uh, You see it in a lot of other shows, you know, when you see like The Walking Dead, they'll have someone who's more powerful have to come in and fight the survivors. You see it in Breaking Bad, where he starts off with just having to deal with a really uh, low level grunt. And then he ends with having to fight the whole cartel, pretty much. Um, (laughs) But, you know, everybody in New Mexico. Well, the the shows that come to my mind are Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Supernatural. Supernatural And I think I think it's in Buffy where they actually whoever the big bad character they're facing that's what they call it within the show itself they're like okay we're just prepping for the next big bad and it's true it's like at the end of any show where there's that kind of action and um adventure story kind of happening you as seasons go on you start running out of your big bads you're like okay what's what's worse than satan oh i know god has a sister and she's the darkness like that's supernatural (laughs) that i'm referencing right now and then we're like wait wait wait, we defeated the darkness um you know what god's gonna be bad now you know like they brought in the antichrist they brought in everything and the final big bad wound up being god himself and it was like okay that's you guys ran out of ideas a long time ago, you know? And that becomes really problematic, right? When you're oh, always yeah. looking for these more and more powerful bad guys because that's that's the end game in some ways. You're dealing with a lot of a lot of things that are very, very important to people who are watching. Well, yeah, I mean, if bringing it back to Marvel, too, we're even past what they've called the end game. Right, <laughs> yeah, right, right. exactly. <laughs> into, it's the post-end game. <laughs> we have all these uh, moments, though. I, I think what essentially Marvel's found themselves as they're kind of pigeonholed yeah. where they have said, okay, well, we have a bunch of superheroes who are smart enough to be like, okay, well, maybe we should prep for the next battle. Right. And well, they prep for the next battle. And when you prep for the next battle, well, you can't really bring someone on who's the exact same power level. So now they have to go higher, but they've reached a point where we can't really go any higher without getting into this spiritual metaphysical yeah. world. Yeah. And for me, I think that, that one of the things that this, these, always increase takes it actually draws me out as Mm -hmm. a viewer as a person who's watched a ton of these movies i think that that i resonate so much more when it feels like the stories are more down to earth when it Mm -hmm. feels like they're more relatable when it starts to get into the multiverse it just sort of again just as a viewer it loses me a little bit Well, and, you know, in the early Avengers days, you had Iron Man, Hawkeye, and Black Widow, none of whom actually has superpowers. They're just average people who are really talented at what they do. You could relate to them because they didn't have, there was no magical component. There was Mm -hmm. no spiritual component. It was just, nope, these are just people who got, Iron Man was just really smart and a really good inventor. Hawkeye got really good at shooting his arrows. Black (laughs) Widow was a trained assassin, you know? And, um, you know, you pit them up against these people who were, who did have superpowers, you know, you had Loki and all the aliens and everything in the first Avengers movies. And, but you could kind of, it was kind of unreasonable to pit, you know, Hawkeye and Black Widow against them, I always thought, because they were average, but they were just strong enough and just good enough at what they did that they could, you know, battle those guys. But then when you put Black Widow and Hawkeye against 
Thanos, you know. Right. It was like, oh, well, yeah, they're not they're not going to stand a t- chance. Like, why are they even here anymore? Well, there's a reason is, why Hawkeye wasn't even in the movie. I know. They just keep bringing in. <laughs> but that's why, like, they keep bringing in new guys because they're like, okay, if our heroes just barely won this battle against our big bad and we bring in an even bigger bad then we need to have even bigger heroes. And then you have to ask the question like, well, you were sitting here all along, Captain Marvel. Why didn't you come and help people at some point? It's like, oh, no, she was off, you know, doing her own thing in the cosmos. But, yeah. Just to switch, like, superhero universes for a minute, I think that this is one of the things that explains the popularity of Batman, right? Because he is, (laughs) just to take it back to Batman. I see what you did there. I'll allow it, it, but go ahead. But when you think about it, people resonate with Batman because he's a little more relatable. When you look at Superman, he's so powerful. He needs such a big bad guy to deal with things. In our modern age, he's not quite as popular as this average dude with a lot of money and a very cool car. Right, and a cave. And a cave. And I I think that when we look at sort of these superhero universes broadly, one of the appeals is not the superpowers, Mm -hmm. but the heroism. We know that superpowers Mm -hmm. do not make the hero. It's what they decide to do with with the opportunities that they've been given, right? Mm -hmm. It is all about doing the right thing when it needs to be done, even if it's hard. When you see somebody who is a little more realistic, a little more relatable, I think that that resonates with us because we all have those times in our lives where we have to make tough decisions to do the right thing. And that's when those stories work, is what Mm -hmm. I hear you saying. Right. And I think we saw that in Spider-Man No Way Home. I think, you know, you have this huge cosmic thing happening with villains coming in from different universes because of, you know, Doctor Strange's spell going awry. But my favorite part of the movie is, you know, are these villains going to choose to be evil when they can choose to be good? I mean, mm-hmm. this sort of yeah. really core question of character. Um, I, I think, too, as I think about it, I have so many thoughts. I feel like we could probably do this discussion for the next three hours. Um, it's almost impossible to talk about superpowers without talking about the second half of that phrase, power. You know, it's... It's you're getting into a godlike realm, right? You know, you're dealing with omnipotence and who has enough power to overcome the evil that faces us. And so I think it almost without fail has to go in a spiritual direction because the stakes keep getting bigger and bigger. So I'd love to just talk about where the spiritual intersects this power conversation a little bit. Yeah, so, you know, uh, Marvel's had really no secret that they've been going in the spiritual direction for a while. I mean, when you bring in the Norse gods, they started off by saying that they were essentially super advanced aliens. Um, Even Scarlet Witch, uh, they said, well, originally she was essentially just experimented on with, you know, this, uh, with one of the Infinity Stones, but still, it was more based in a more grounded uh, level. Almost scientific in some ways. But as we've gotten further and further and further, and as they've realized, oh, well, we've just introduced someone who they defeated who had the ability to snap half of existence out of the world and with literally, like I said, just a snap of a finger. Um, How much higher can you go than that? Right. And so you see them start to add all these other gods. You see, we've seen canonically now, you've seen uh, 
ancient Aztec gods. You've seen plenty of gods in, in Thor, Love, and Thunder. Um, they even <laughs> made a reference to Jesus, which right. uh, Watiti said was intentional. And then you also have, you know, someone like Kang the Conqueror, who is supposedly supposed to be the next big bad villain of Phase 5. Um, and at one point in Loki, he says, hey, if you kill me, I'm just going to come back again. And eventually, uh, spoiler alert if you haven't seen Loki, he does die. <laughs> and he says, yeah. I'm coming back again. And yeah. lo and behold, in the Ant-Man trailer for Quantumania, we see Kang is back. And it's just something where we start to think, well... What are the repercussions on this, just philosophically, spiritually? I think that was one of the things that actually made the new Black Panther movie, Wakanda Forever, powerful, was the idea that in the superhero universe, so often death is a temporary thing. It's just a little tiny setback. Yeah. In this movie, it was much more powerful because it was much more permanent. We know that the actor who played uh, Black Panther had died, and he was not coming back. And I think that because of that power, when we realize that the stakes are real, um, it can become much more resonant with the viewers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that when you have characters who just constantly come back to life, you actually lose a little something there because it's like – you know, there are no stakes. Like, if the stakes are life and death, which is literally the highest stakes can be, but actually, you know, if you die, you can come back to life, then there are no stakes. Well, and I think it gets at, again, all kinds of spiritual questions, right? Because I think in our existence, and maybe this is one of the ways that we talk about it with our kids, Mm -hmm. you're not coming back from death from some magical means or chronological means or all of the ways they essentially cheat death, you yeah. know, that that's a final thing. And that's why the gospel is important. Yeah. And I think uh, something else to touch on really quickly is that uh, in the times when death is more of a permanent in Marvel, uh, specifically with the spiritual side of everything, Marvel's kind of taken the stance of everything is valid. All of your beliefs are valid. And when you die, you're going to go to whatever afterlife you had believed in. Right. So because they've shown that uh, the Black Panther afterlife is valid, the Egyptian afterlife is valid, Valhalla exists. Uh, They've shown all these places exist. And uh, that's something, you know, we just need to warn our kids about is that, no, this is not true. Yeah, as we go into this more spiritual uh, time frame for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I know that lots of kids, lots of teens, lots of families go to watch these movies. But it's really important as parents to be aware of the direction that Marvel has turned. And you have to be willing to take on those difficult conversations. Um, The spirituality, in some cases, for some families, can be navigable. You can even draw some interesting parallels with our own faith. But for a lot of times... It may be where you just say, this is something that's off limits, or this is something we are going to set aside a time to talk deeply about, to talk about some of the spiritual issues that we see here. I love that, Paul, because what we're saying is, as we respond to it as parents, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer, even necessarily within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I, I remember being really bothered by the spiritual darkness in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse mm-hmm. of Madness. And I remember not having the same sort of emotion with Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which is, again, positing an entirely new pantheon 
of belief with these Aztec gods and goddesses that relate to uh, Namor, uh, who people may know as the Submariner. And so I think that we do have to enter into it with that kind of intentionality. You know, are there things that are going to be out of bounds? But if we're going to watch it, what are the connecting points to our faith? And I think that we can talk about this issue of power. I mean, that's one of our core struggles as human beings, right? We want to be what able to to affect change. Well, I think a lot of times we're on the other end of it in that we're not superheroes. We're normal, you know? And so I think part of the fantasy of superheroes is wouldn't it be great to have the power to be able to resist or to change the things that we can't impact, you know, as normal mortal human beings. Um, but obviously that's where our faith comes into play. What does it mean for me to trust God with the things that I can't change or can't impact? Um, and so I think depending on the movie, depending on your family, there could be conversational jumping off points there to talk about those things. Or you say, you know what? That is just way too dark and there's not enough redemption here to justify even wading into it. Um, I mean, I personally, when I was growing up, and, and if you've listened to the Plugged In show for a while, you'll know I'm a huge Vision and Scarlet Witch fan because they were my favorite heroes as a kid. But I don't really like what they're doing with some of the dark spirituality of, of Scarlet Witch's story. And so with all of these heroes, if we have favorite heroes or favorite stories, we've got to make the call, what's good, what's bad, where's the line, but we want to engage with those stories intentionally so that we're helping our kids see here's the real connection point to our faith and what we believe, because ultimately these are fanciful and fun stories, but we have the ultimate story that we trust in. Well, I know that we could talk about this subject ad infinitum for the next, you know, however many multiverses of time we might have. But I hope that as we've talked about some of these things, both as fans and from a spiritual perspective, that it's helped you to think, how do I navigate this as a parent? And that's what the Plugged In Show is here to do, is just to give you some encouragement and places and ways for you to think about, how do I wade through all of this stuff in pop culture? So thanks, guys. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction in our second segment today... Paul, AC, and I are going to be talking about Avatar. So, uh, as of this recording time, we saw the movie, both of us, last night. Just last night. Same screening. And... We refused to talk to each other. We did not. not speak one word to each other about this movie. And so now... Our personally enforced embargo is up. <laughs> and we shall talk about... Oh... Many things. I'm not sure the last time I walked out of a movie and I thought there were like six movies in there. You know, it's three hours and 15 minutes. And so it almost felt like six movies. It felt like six movies, but it, you know, there's the standard issue storyline, but then there's all of these interesting subplots. So we'll see how much of that that we can sort of blast through. And maybe cherry pick some of the bigger themes and some of the things that I think there's some content here parents are going to want to know about ahead of time, both visually and philosophically. Mm -hmm. We've got stuff to deal with uh, in what feels like an annoyingly remarkable movie. I'm just going to start <laughs> with my aesthetic response. Like for the first hour, I'm like, all right, he's not going to get me. I refuse to be gotten by Avatar because the first one is the biggest movie in history, 
But you're hard pressed to remember anybody's name, anything about yeah. it, other than yeah. it's these big blue aliens fighting the bad Marines, right? Um, it's basically dances with wolves in space with more special effects. Um, I didn't love the first one. You um, reviewed the first one. I did review the first one. And this one, the first hour, I'm like, okay, he's not really doing anything here that takes this story too much further. And then, boom, Cameron got me. So what's going on, Paul, in this story? I mean, oh, there's a man. lot going on, but give us the thumbnail sketch. So there is a lot going on. Essentially, in the first movie, we have to sort of set it up with the first yeah. movie. Because so you had these humans come down to this planet called Pandora, which Pandora. is a beautiful, lush, gorgeous planet. They want to obtain this mineral called unobtainium, which right. feels a little bit on the nose to me, but that's right. beside the point. Exactly. There's a marine contingent that is trying to deal with the quote unquote natives, the Navi. Right. Uh, that and they're the tall, they're like the tall, feet, blue, tall blue people. people. Exactly, exactly. So Jake Sully starts off as one of those marines, but he comes to love the planet and loves somebody on the planet so much that eventually he becomes one of the Navi. Right. Thus, the name Avatar. Right. All the humans were pretty much kicked off, with a couple of little exceptions. Right. But and now, some of those who stayed had arrows through their heads. Exactly. You do stuff. see some dead bodies every once in a while. <laughs> but so the movie sort of sets off where the, the humanity is coming back and they are coming back to stay. Apparently, uh, the earth is in a bad place. We wrecked the earth again. We wrecked the earth again. So they're coming. They're going to set up shop here. And of course, the Navi, led by Jake Sully, at least the the portion of the Navi that we see here, um, they are not too keen on that. So you see sort of this guerrilla war taking place. The leader of the human contingent, Colonel, uh, he actually died in the last movie, but he comes back. All of his memories have been planted into a Navi avatar. Right. He is And the same with his Marine team, too. The same with his Marine team. They come back. They are after Jake Sully uh, because they they know that he's kind of the key to getting a foothold. Plus, they have an axe to grind. So and other weapons too. So essentially, what happens is because they know that these Marines are after Jake and his family. Jake and his family go off and they go to this new place in Pandora that is much more watery than the old yeah. one. It's sort of like, you know, Hawaii-ish. It's very pretty. Only one better, thing, I think. One thing that that James Cameron does really well is he creates really compelling worlds. Yes. And I think that that's one of the things. I don't think that I love this movie as much as you did, um, but he does create these incredibly compelling, realistic, beautiful worlds. And I think that's where where he catches a lot of people. Yeah. And, and I don't know that I loved it. I at least didn't hate it. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to actively dislike it. I wanted to be the one critic who said, yeah, it's not all that. This is an impressive film. It is an impressive film. Um, There's a lot going on. Three hours, 15 minutes. uh, It does feel long, but it doesn't feel that long. Well, and I would say, to me, the testimony of it working, I didn't think about time once. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once the story got going, it really moves. So... um, in a nutshell, you know, we've got basically another iteration of this sort of noble, native, pure, innocent, good 
not very technological, although there are a few exceptions, people fighting off the big, bad corporate machine gun toting awful humans or people who used to be human now are not V, but they still have a human spirit in them because they still behave really badly. Right. So that's the core story. What are some of the things that you feel like parents should be aware of here let's let's do the good because yeah. you know that's the way we like to we like to start off with an air of positivity an air of right there's actually a lot positive here there really is there really is i think that that obviously we talked a little bit about the world building this is a beautiful world we see uh the beauty of what we would call god's creation now they right. have a totally different god on goddess yes. on pandora that we'll get into uh but you do have just this wonderful world that does deserve, you know, to be stewarded well. Right. Right? Um, The other thing that really struck me about the movie is the emphasis that it placed on family. Yes. It talks all the time. And fatherhood. And fatherhood. It talks about Sully's stick together. That's sort of the family's mantra. And you have these- Which feels like some sort of Monsters, Inc. callback, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) It has this sort of great chemistry. You know, Sully and his wife, they have have four kids now, one of whom is adopted. They all love each other. They all protect each other. They fight a little bit. Uh, but it really shows a, power, a very, very powerful dynamic. Yep. You even have this sort of tag-along human who sort of becomes part of the family as well. He's yep. he's Spider. They call His him Spider. Um, and he becomes sort of this adjunct family yeah. member. Uh, and I really love the dynamic that we saw within that family. We saw that that. The powerful pull that family members have for each other. Yeah. And I thought it did a nice job of showing both the importance of the father's strength. Like multiple times, Sully says, fathers protect. And I'm like, you know what? That's awesome. Because we don't hear that enough. And yet he has a relationship with his wife where there's push and pull Mm -hmm. about their decision making. He disciplines the kids at one point when they sort of make some poor decisions. And his wife basically says, aren't you being too hard on them? And he says, well, it's actually my job to be hard on them, to help them to grow up. And there's this interesting parenting dynamic. And then then she says, you know, you're not raising a squadron. You're raising a family. Exactly. You're a family. And I think that that's an important thing to get across. You see some other families here as well. And one of my favorite moments, you know, most of this movie is computer animated. Right. But you meet this other family uh, in this watery world that they go to, uh, the head of the tribe there and his wife. And one of the things that I loved about it was you have this husband and wife, they communicate almost solely through little glances. Yep. Like you can see them communicating just as a real husband and wife does. And for a computer-generated creature oh, to amazing. do this, I mean, it was it was pretty good. Okay. So that's the good. And obviously there's a battle against... I mean, the battle here is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. And if I have a complaint about the movie, not in a plugged-in sense, but just story-wise, to me, the, the villains are so black and white, they're pretty two-dimensional. Uh, That part didn't work particularly well for me. And I think it does lead into a plugged in sort of observation that it's so black and white that you come away with the idea that the Navi are totally good and the humans are really, really 
not good, with a couple small exceptions. Yes, let me push back on that a little bit. The main villain that we have here, the Colonel. Yes. Um, Spider is actually the original Colonel's son. Right. And you see, even there, you see sort of this family connection where they're really on opposing sides. Spider is all Navi. Even though the colonel is literally Navi, he is all human. They have very different roles. But you can see the sense they oddly protect each other in some really critical situations. And you see some more complexity than than I was expecting. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But I think... I think especially if you're a member of the military, sure, this is going to feel like an offensive movie because the Marines are just – they are the worst kind of caricature of gun, you know, trigger-happy American yahoos that just love to go in and slaughter people. And there's one scene where they set a village on fire just kind of because that really had Vietnam-era – kind of vibe for me. Like Cameron knows what he's doing and he's old enough to know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was one of the concerns I had thematically was, you know, you could walk away with the feeling, uh, eh, humans and I think Americans sure. are evil. Sure. I mean, and that's that's the black and white part. Well, you do see a lot of a lot of denigration of corporate interest yeah. of the military it is it is very much of an environmental fate oh yeah and to tell the story that Cameron wanted to tell you have these caricatures yep right and so it really does I, I totally agree with you on the military aspect of it because uh, they are very very proudly marine right these bad guys and, and they're although, really bad and they're not very good people in this. Yeah. Um, so you do have just sort of that black and white nature that only is mitigated occasionally. It's not mitigated much, but yeah. What other content things? Um, you know, I think there are three areas. I'm going to cue you up here. Let's talk briefly about violence, about some of the, I'll call it sensual imagery, because that's impossible to avoid, and then some of the spiritual stuff. You bet. You bet. And the language is an issue as well. And the language, yeah. You have – this is sort of ramped up from what you would see in a Marvel movie, I think, in terms of the language. Uh, The violence is obviously very, very front and center. This is essentially a war movie in a way. Uh, So you see fatalities. You see death. You see blood. You see in one scene an arm flying off into the air. So you do have some issues like that. Uh, the sensuality is, it's always weird when you're talking about the Avatar movies because yeah. you have these blue people who do not wear very much. They're very close to naked. And you do have a human character, uh, sort of this, what is portrayed as this teen boy who also goes around in V clothing. Right. So you have sort of that- it's basically s- a loincloth. Exactly. So you have that sort of ratcheted up a little bit. Um, you see some, I would characterize it as blue nudity. Yeah, there's some nudity. You know? Uh, So obviously it's all computer animated. You're going to have to sort of weigh that with whether it's navigable, but it did feel sensual to me. It felt sensual to me. Um, And then when we're talking about the spiritual aspects of it, what we have on Pandora is this very, obviously it's a very environmentally pure place and it's all predicated on this earth goddess essentially called Awa. Um, she controls everything. Everything is very natural, nature-based yep. uh, and you have characters that actually pray to Awa yeah. at times. So it feels 
to a Christian sensibility, it can feel pagan, right. I would guess and, would be the word. And I, was, I felt like it went back and forth between like straight up pantheism because mm-hmm. all of these things are connected. But sometimes they would pray to her in a personal way that had a little bit more of a monotheistic yeah. kind of personal vibe to it. So yeah. you get some of both of those things. One of the things that always sort of annoys me in some action horror movies is that people are about to die and they never pray. You would think that would be sort of a natural reaction. Yeah. Even if you don't pray hardly ever, you would say, okay, I really need some help, God. And they, you'd never see that. Here, you see those elements, but it's directed at a different goddess, uh, which I think is sort of interesting. You even have sort of this hint. uh, James Cameron wants to make a lot more of these movies. Uh, You have this little tiny hint of possibly a virgin birth. Yep. There there is this mystery of of someone who... They don't know how she got pregnant, and it didn't seem like it was the normal way. Exactly, exactly. So you have that element just sort of lurking for future movies. It's not really addressed in this one, but it's there. Yeah. One other thing that I want to point out, and we'll bring our conversation into a, to a close here. For me, the most emotionally wrenching scene in the whole movie had to do with the hunting of these giant whale-like creatures that play a huge role in the second half of the movie. And I'm telling you what, Paul, I was emotionally invested in the scene and it rips your heart out. It is a tough, tough scene. And, And I actually, I actually thought, man, if this movie does as well as I think it's going to do, I think it could actually influence real world whale hunting, which Mm -hmm. might sound like a totally ridiculous thing to say. But I mention that because if you have really sensitive on the young side viewers, those scenes are really, really difficult. Yeah. One of the things when I was growing up, I loved whales. I researched whales. I thought they were the most, and I still do. I think that there are just beautiful, beautiful creations. Yeah. Um, So I share that. You know, I think that the impact that you see in those scenes, I was thinking the exact same thing that you did. If a six-year-old me was sitting in the theater, it would be gut-wrenching. It would be gut-wrenching. So I think that that's something... I cared more about those whales than maybe any of the characters in the movie. Well, that's really true, right? (laughs) And they're they're magnificent And they're not called whales. They've got another name. They've got another name. But they're beautiful. Obviously, they're based on whales. They're they're these beautiful, intelligent creatures that serve a very important story, uh, part of the story. And, uh, And yeah, so for sensitive viewers, it can be pretty hard to watch. So I think at the end of the day, we have a PG-13 movie with... Which kind of pushes the PG-13 It does, it, but it has some of everything. Mm. I mean, you've got some really positive stuff. You've got spirituality. You've got good versus evil. You've got family. And then you've got content issues in almost every category that we pay attention to. So I think... Even more so than usual, this is one if, you know, you have younger children who are interested in this, uh, read our full review. And Paul's done a terrific job, as always, uh, <laughs> letting us know what this one is all about. Uh, and just as a public service message, don't drink any water for like 12 hours before you go see it, because <laughs> three hours and 15 minutes yeah. is a long it is, time. It is a long time. All right. Thanks, Paul. Well, now it's time for a part of the show we call the Pop Culture Connection. And in this game, 
Our producer, Ashley. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Adam. She throws um, entertainment-related questions at each of us that are awesome questions, and we have 30 seconds to give as many answers as our little brains can possibly come up with. And each week, it's an opportunity to see whose brain is hot firing and whose isn't. Mine clearly mm-hmm. isn't because I can't even talk. So, <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to turn it over to you, Ashley. All right, Adam, I'm going to let you go first. Oh, goody. <laughs> yeah. I'm all warmed up from talking and stuff. That's right. <laughs> all right. Your question is, what do you think is the best Pixar movie for families and why? Oh, man. I'm going to go Toy Story, the original, the OG, because you've got such great characters. You've got issues that kids can connect with. You've got issues of growing up. You've got issues of rivalry, which anybody who has a brother or sister can deal with. Um, Lots of issues. (laughs) <laughs> yes, there are lots of issues, Paul. I don't need you to critique my answer, though, because I'm losing points. <laughs> yeah, that one. Okay. That one. Awesome. Well, five Terrifying points. Oh, good. That felt like about four to me, so I'll take the bonus point. All right. <laughs> awesome. point, as we call it. Okay, okay. <laughs> All right, Emily, I'm just going to go around the table. That's what I get for my snarky comment. Uh-huh. You're next. <laughs> All right. And your question is... If you could win a big award, like a Golden Globe, an Oscar, a Grammy, or a Tony, what would you win for? Why does that have significance for you? It would be an Oscar for directing and it would or for writing, and it would be that because when I that's what I studied in college, um, and that's what I really wanted to do. That was my dream when I was in college. <laughs> my dream has changed because, <laughs> you know, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus intervenes, and he's like, actually, we're going to go this direction. <laughs> um, but, no, I think that really and truly it would still be that. I had some professors in college who really thought I was going to do that. But hmm. Now nice. she wants to plug That was a lovely nice. answer. It was a lovely answer. I got four, but I'm going to give you an extra bonus point yeah, for pity Jesus. Point for you I too. Played the Jesus card. <laughs> you win. We don't even need to do right. anybody else. Uh, maybe next time, Paul. <laughs> All right, Kennedy. Hello. Yeah, that's what happened. You make the snarky comment, and she goes to you. Okay. <laughs> throat, yeah. This kind of goes along with what we talked about today. Oh. Who is better, Captain America or Iron Man, and why? Uh, I think Iron Man is cooler, but I think Captain America is more correct. Uh, if you see, if you watch uh, Civil War, uh, I'm completely on Captain America's side. Uh, I get where Iron Man's coming from with Captain America. He's like, hey, if we do this, they're going to make us do things we don't want to do. And, we're the, and what if we want to fight? And what if we don't want to fight? And I'm kind of rambling, but uh, anyways. Uh, but on the other side, Iron Man, he's got a lot of cooler gadgets, you know, a lot more... uh, Captain America is essentially just as strong as you can be. That's not very cool. (laughs) Nice. So I'm just going to say this. There's a line in the original Avengers movie that I know it's cheesy, but I always loved it, where Black Widow looks at Captain America and she says, you don't want to get involved, Cap. These guys are basically gods, referring to Thor and Loki. There's only one god, ma'am. And And I'm pretty pretty sure sure he he doesn't doesn't dress like that. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yes. Thank you, Captain America. (laughs) You can't play... The Jesus card on my turn. Yeah, I can. 
I got three points for you. Can nice I get a job. pity point too? You can have the pity point too. Nice. So four points for you. Right. So we got five, and you five, still four. Lose. So much I mean, it's fine. I just want a pity point. Yeah. All right. If we're just um, handing them out. It's like a handicap this week, right? <laughs> you know, we could curve. just if we I each like get a pity so point, much. we could just take all the pity points away, and then we'll it's like a, can still we, be the can same we save ratio. Them up? Oh, that would be cool. And like, I'm playing all my pity points all on this one. All my pity points. <laughs> I got this 14. <laughs> all right, Paul. <clears throat> what book have you read that you'd like to see as a movie, and why? Oh my goodness, this is really hard. Um, 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 I would love to see... Let's pick a Marvel comic. <laughs> you know what? I think I'm going to go with The Bully Pulpit, which is a book about uh, Theodore Roosevelt and uh, Taft, who followed him, and sort of their experience, their relationship as they were pushing uh, into the presidency. I think it's fascinating because you have two incredibly compelling characters. You deal a lot with the media at the time. They're dealing with some... Mm, See, he didn't play the God card because he could have been like a book of the Bible. Exactly. Ah, (laughs) He'd be like, I'd like to see the book of Psalms in a movie. Uh, Ezekiel. That would be a great sci-fi movie. I think Revelations. I would be totally (laughs) on board for Revelations. Well, I think we had a lot of solid answers this week. I don't know that there was a clear winner. You know what? You you haven't told me my points. There was a clear loser. I got four. You got Yeah. With the, with the pity point, so. So you and I tied if we want to get literal. Yeah, see, if yeah. I had been able to just get the name of the book out a little bit earlier, all you guys would have been well, toast. Well, no, stick around was... for the arm wrestling section so we can see <laughs> who wins. No, I thought those were all That's good answers. Funny. So good job, you guys. All nice, right. Nice work. Yay! Yay! Yay. <laughs> Go us. We're so great. <laughs> Well, thanks again for spending some time with us at the Plugged In Show this week. And if you've enjoyed our conversation, tell your friends. That's the best way to get word of mouth out there about what the Plugged In Show is all about. And you can also leave us a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And we would love to hear from you. Do you like these Marvel plot twists where we get villains exercising godlike powers or heroes exercising godlike powers? Is it too much? I mean, you know, Paul kind of talked about... It's a little bit boring when everybody has all the power in the universe. So do you like the smaller stories? Let us know. And you can also, you know, talk to us about Avatar 2. Do you think Cameron can do it again? Is he going to make $3 billion on this one? Uh, If there's one thing I've learned, it's never to bet against James Cameron. So let us know what you think. And you can do that on our Facebook or Instagram pages. And that's a great place to keep this conversation going or shoot us an email at team at thepluggedinshow.com and we may just feature your comments on an upcoming show. And if you liked our conversation today and want to go deeper, the inspiration for it came from Kennedy Unthank's blog entry from November 9th. It's called What is Power Creep in Marvel and Why Does It Matter? You'll find a link to that piece in the episode notes for today's show and in our blog entry for this week's conversation at pluggedin.com slash blog. So come check it out. Kennedy's done some terrific thinking and writing here, and I think that you will appreciate what he has to say. Well, thanks again for spending some time with us today at The Plugged In Show. We hope that this has been an engaging and an informative conversation, and we look forward to spending some more time with you next week on the next episode of The Plugged In Show. A mysterious phone call and a new nemesis? Emily Jones and Matthew Parker are on the case. 
I just need to find out who this person is. Oh, it sounds like a real mystery. It all starts with a phone caller threatening to blackmail Jones and Parker's friend Jeremy. But this new nemesis won't stop there. Can Emily and Matthew figure out who this blackmailer is before it's too late? Solve the mystery with them by reading Jones and Parker Case Files, The Nemesis. It's the second book in the series with 16 new stories full of fun, faith, and intrigue. It's a great way for kids ages 8 to 12 to sharpen their detective skills while learning important values. Inspect clues, examine the evidence, and try to guess who done it. This is going to be harder than I thought, Mr. Whitaker. Oh, stop saying that, Priscilla. Relax. We're going to have a blast. For more, go to adventuresinodyssey.com slash jonesandparker. That's adventuresinodyssey.com slash jonesandparker.